That's a very nice jumper, Hugh. Thanks. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Who's it made by? Maybe, maybe, oh. we, maybe we should start the chat with talking about your jumper. I think we already did. That was what that was from Rory. Oh, are we actually on? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise. <laughs> That's the plan. I love how natural that was. Um, oh, I we don't, started, I don't yeah. really know. All that matters is that it was about 70% off. Oh, is that right? Where from? Uh, from an online shopping website. Oh, you bought it on the, inter- in the internet. As seen on screen. Well, you just watch QVC and that's where you get your fashion tips from. <laughs> it would be good, wouldn't it? If they've got 70% off, I'm having it. I don't, I don't really care if it looks good or not. 70% off is fine, but how much did you actually pay for it? Because well, it's okay, but you wouldn't want to pay more than £45 for it. 45 Did you pay? It was 25 well, It looks like it was as well, yeah. What, si- what <laughs> oh, size are you? What si- no, no, no. What size are you? Are you a medium? This is a medium. I thought so. It's odd. You're quite tall, Ferris. What? What? What's odd about that? Well, I would have thought you would be a large because of height. No, he's an ectomorph, you see. So he's, you know, he's got very he's narrow shoulders, very easy to birth. An oh, ect- yeah. An ectomorph. Ectomorph, yeah. There's ectomorphs and endomorphs about your body shape. Do you not know? No. No, you don't understand that. Well, it, we'll talk about that one day, maybe. What, what is an hourglass An ectomorph. Figure? You're more of an ex. What, like a, an hourglass figure? I don't like, think that. Wide at the top see, I'm and more, then in. Yeah, I'm more of an endomorph because I'm, I'm kind of smallish and fairly yeah. chunky. Yeah. Whereas Hugh being leaner and taller is an ectomorph. It's, it's different body shapes. You look like an upside down triangle. That's what you look like. <laughs> yes. That's quite good though, isn't it? I haven't got narrow hips though. I've got child-bearing hips. That's what, I was, hips? that's what I was told once by a, uh, a senior consultant. Yeah, he said, have you ever, ever had any children? I said, funnily enough, no. Because <laughs> your symphysis pubis is, is, is quite uh, expanded. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you would, have been, would have been able to fire them out had that been biologically I, 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 The problem is, out. I think it's all those 60-yard crossfield balls. It plays havoc with your symphysis pubis. Is that right? So uh, all the young footballers out there, take care. That's why a short tic-a-tac-a style of football is much better on the hips. That is it. That, this is fascinating. Mm. For, for, by, by Steve, you look you look confused I and amused. So, would your career have perhaps lasted longer if Joe Royal didn't have such an expansive approach he, to if, uh, tactics? If, if he hadn't bought Andre Konchelskis for my pinpoint sixty-yard crossfield balls, my hips would have lasted a lot longer. But it was the game plan. So my 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 hips really don't lie. They, they don't lie at all. You no. sacrificed yourself for Joe Rawls' game. I did, I did. Yeah. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Rory Smith, toughened by his Yorkshire youth, Stephen Wyeth, hardened by his home county's upbringing, <laughs> and Andy Hinchcliffe, weathered by the footballing world. <laughs> oh, that's great, isn't it? You think that's my, that should go on my, my, my gravestone? Yes. Uh, I'm going to be cremated, it's not going to work, it's not going to work. It's going to go where? On your business card. Do you think so? Weathered yeah. by the... F- that's not a good thing, though, is it? I don't know. I think it, would, it would catch people's eye. It would, but would it be in a good way? Who are you waving at? Your wife. Oh. Hello. Don't worry, we can just stop Hi. and edit it out. It's fine, don't worry. Are you okay? Were you concerned that, that yeah, Hugh had spotted okay. a friendly burglar? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know that guy who's breaking into my house. <laughs> he robbed us a couple of weeks ago. Uh, jolly maybe, decent about it. Maybe Kate would like a cinnamon swell because mm. uh, from the, the, the noises that are yeah, being made by the people who are eating them, uh, a cinnamon swells are going down very nicely. Uh, joined by a cafetiere of coffee, uh, which will have shortly uh, be plunged. Um, all of this provided uh, by uh, Rory. So thank you. Chinch, what are you doing? Chinch is miking up the pouring after the cafetiere has been plunged. <laughs> it's just so the listeners 
This is real. <laughs> it's happening, people. That is real, and not at all falsified or fake. So you can get in touch with the podcast. Set Piece Menu is where we are on Twitter. Set Piece Menu at gmail.com. Uh, find us on Facebook as well. Uh, Mark Cole, Buffalo Mark Cole, has got in touch to say this. Uh, Dear SBM crew, recently on a national radio show featuring paywall journalist Rory K. Smith, we learned a former league champion turned pundit often keeps a horse in his house. Carl Pilkington style, which is a reference that many, but not all, will understand. Uh, we know that there are horses and indeed cows in the vicinity of Chinchfork, but has Andy ever let one of them inside? That is from Mark. Well, I used to own... Well, I, well yeah, did I own the horses? My, my, the former Mrs. Hinchcliffe uh, used to ride horses, dressage and the such, and hunting. So we wasted slash spent a lot she, of money she, on horses. She, she hunted horses? No, she didn't hunt horses with a high-powered rifle. She rode the horses across the fields and jumped hedges and stuff. Actually, Not fox hunting. It was drag hunting or something. They drag a scent round and they all just charge off and yeah, they're big horses. That is definitely what they say they're doing. That is... Yeah. that is. Well, I wasn't there, so maybe they yeah, were fox. And anyway, anyway, that's... Anyway, I'm, dead fox I'm quite happy to say now, yes, she went fox hunting and loved it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so... We, we had we had lots of horses. We had a house with with some stables and stuff as well. And uh, did, did they come in? Did they ever let come in? Go into, into the house? No, because like, we had stables. Like Chris Sutton. Horses tend to want to be in stables. They don't tend to want to slip under a duvet in a double bed because they're quite big. Some of the horses we had, Norman, Stormy Norman, was a giant of a horse, seventeen hands high. Chris Sutton, the former Norwich striker. I saw him. I saw him at Southampton did recently. You? Did you? Did you ignore me? Did he? Well, I ignored him as well, so it's yeah. mutual. Mutual ignoration. Um, has a small horse, a pony. I didn't really realise that ponies were a thing. Yeah. I thought that ponies were like a stage in the before horse's life. Before the horse. Before horsedom. <laughs> so you were a pony. and then So you all be- ponies grow into horses. So I thought there was yeah, a foal, yeah. and then there was a pony. pony. And then you were a horse. A horse, no. No, no. no. A pony it's, a height, it's a height, it's it's a an height en- thing. Pony is an end in itself. We, yeah, we, we know you're not this stupid, so come on, mm. seriously. I, do, I think I probably hadn't ever really thought about it. About Hadn't gone through the process. The, of the stages of, of horsery. No. Um, but it turns out that he has a pony, not a horse, mm. that he lets come in into his breakfast nook to eat breakfast with him. It was a really st- we had a really strange Monday night club a few weeks ago because it was International Week and there was nothing to talk about. And it was eventually enlivened by Michael Richards being amazing. But initially, there was this Sutton horse story, and then Chris Sutton got his daughter, who I think is nine, to come on the nas- come on national radio, which I thought was a was a an odd power play, if I'm honest. Because there's been a photo of this on social media since, hasn't there, of the the Sutton pony enjoying it's, breakfast? There was one before it, and it was to it's to do with six oh six, so it's not you know. Not is, it, is it like Nero? Is he is he no, married to this horse, or is it just? Nero, part of his extended you are family. thinking of Caligula. Is it Caligula that was married to the horse? Who made his horse senator. Ah. And the horse's name was... Your dad's going to be really cross with me, so I should know this. Because Nero was the fiddler. Uh, something like a fullus. Yeah, it was a fullus, wasn't it? it was something, Bucephalus. It was, no, something it went with a C. Yeah, Bucephalus. Oh, Bucephalus. no, is that a different horse? No, Bucephalus is a, mythologi- uh, oh. is a mythological horse, I think. Uh, no, you're thinking of Shergar. <laughs> and Shergar was stolen and killed, not mythological. He was real. It's very horse-heavy, the start of this really pod, is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, yeah we have some VAR-related correspondence to catch up with, you'll be pleased to know, uh, which we will bring together in a special episode of For F's Sake, You Don't Go to VAR, featuring both Stephen Wyeth and also... Listeners, we will build up to Stephen with these contributions, and these are just a few of the many, all of which we find very amusing and we enjoy very much uh, indeed. Do you have horse news first? He's uh, on my phone, which is like, what do you don't don't put turn it into Russian or something? Don't do that because Gilles de Bilder once did that. I thought it was hilarious. 
put my phone onto Russian and it took me about a week to get back to uh, finding out what the hell I was meant to be doing. They didn't have phones when you were playing. Oh, or mobile phones. How very dare you. Incitatus. Incitatus. Which means Thank swift. you very much indeed. So that was um, Caligula's Caligula's. That was a horse that Caligula's Senator Caligula's Slash Lover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we'll start this little VAR tranche with uh, uh, Dr. Mohamed El Salah. You remember him? Uh, he is here again. Greetings, gentlemen. First off, don't let Rory convince you that you've plateaued. I think you guys are still going strong and producing wonderful content. Oh, no, we are. I, I purely meant in terms of audience. Second, I have a question regarding the VAR discussion. <laughs> Do you guys think that the Premier League's decision to wait for as long as it did to implement VAR has influenced dis- the discussion around it right now? What we kept hearing for a very long time is that the officials from the Premier League were not convinced by the technology and that the mechanics of it were not fully ready. Did the wait increase people's expectations? We assumed that basically having let other competitions trial and error VAR, that we'd just be able to pick up and run with it as they had sort of proved was possible after a couple of seasons. And for some reason that proved not to be the case because we refused to learn from other people's mistakes and have proceeded to make them all over all over again ourselves for the last couple of months. That's definitely true. I also, also think there's an element of whatever had happened, people would have complained about it because the main thing that people around English football and media fans, whatever like doing is complaining it takes time to get used to anything new even if actually just a a little bit of observing what was going on elsewhere in the world you would have would have learned and if we if we took var away now do you think fans would complain when decisions went against their teams that we should get var back yes yes yeah yes Uh, mohammed finishes personally i think one of the potential solutions to var from the point of view of the fans in the stadium is the nfl method where the replay is shown on the big screen the referee announces the call on loudspeakers to everyone i'm sure this will bring a bunch of problems along with it but it still seems like a good solution to me that's from uh, dr mohammed el salah who says keep up the good work and then neil chasen says about var i come at this from the point of view of the tv ref in international rugby having watched the rugby world cup the way that the rugby world uses var is brilliant they show the question on the big screen the referee is confused about and then the referees the assistants and the VARF all come to agreement about the call and the correct call is made football needs to follow suit I like the idea of showing a question on the big screen that the referee is confused about what was the name of Caligula's horse <laughs> what is the capital of Outer Mongolia and everybody has to doodle it and then when, he's got, the audience. when he's got an answer then the game continues yes because wi- Wi-Fi and football saved you famously good yeah. notoriously good enough for that kind of uh, uh, so that's from Neil Chasen so both Neil and Mohammed is suggesting um, taking ideas from other sports. The, the idea that there needs to be use of the video screens and an on-field explanation from the referee, I find a little bit far-fetched because football is fairly straightforward, rules and regulations-wise, yeah. and all this stuff that we're hearing about supporters in the ground don't know what's going on. Well, I think you could be a little bit clearer about the fact that something is being reviewed. Yeah. But when the referee signals his decision, it's usually fairly clear, right, there was an offside in the build-up or there was a handball or there was a foul. It doesn't leave much to the imagination, no, does it? it so don't, I don't think we need a referee to trot over to the sidelines, NFL style, mm-hmm. and explain their decision because the rules are considerably more straightforward yeah, yeah. in soccer than they are in American football or rugby. The I generally object to the idea that football has anything to learn from rugby other than, I suppose, its, it's massive inflated sense of self-importance. <laughs> Although football's doing pretty well on that. Anyway, the, I, I agree with Steve. I think most people know what the, the infraction is likely to be. The refs, they do their little semaphore and it, seem, it seems to work. If, if the referee was to suddenly, having waved away claims for a penalty, to 30 seconds later having put his finger in his ear, done a big 
rectangular yeah. symbol in the, the sky and run over and point to the penalty spot. I don't think anyone within the stadium could really rightly claim, I have no idea what's just what's happened What's he trying there? to say there, Steve, by all that? That's very confusing. Oh, no, it's a penalty. Yeah. It's a pa- Sorry, yeah, you're, you're right, you are right. You know, you know podcasts? I have heard familiar of such with a thing. One or two Sadly, of them. Yeah. Apparently they're quite popular now. The Everyone's got one. Every white man's got one. <laughs> the um, Michael Lewis does one called Against the Rules, or did, they've just finished their first series, which was about the kind of role of refer- referees in inverted commas in American life. It was really interesting. But part of the the precept of that was that we don't trust pe- the people who are designed, whose job it is to sort of officiate our society anymore. And I think with football, his, he started off with the NBA, saying that who've got the replay centre and stuff at, um, somewhere in some industrial park in New Jersey, I think. And he, the, the point there was that people in basketball don't actually trust that the referees are getting it right or, or are kind of doing it free of partisanship. And I think one of the big problems with referees, with VAR, with whatever they do, is that basically the, the crowd now is predisposed not to trust the referee. And that's actually quite a dangerous situation to be in. Which is my only problem with what Stephen was saying about, I think it's clear what the referee is doing. Yes, it's clear what the decision has been. But, but not how it's been reached. we are not, um, yes, show you working, basically, but is basically, I think what has been suggested. The, the, the area of improvement, and I think we discussed this when we, when we were talking about the fact that if, as part of the theatre, if the referee was going over to the screen, at least people within the stadium would have a better understanding of the reason that there is a delay. A referee stood in the middle of the field who may or may not have touched his ear convincingly enough to, to let everybody know that there is a review taking place is, is a little bit more ambiguous. Uh, I'm happy with the idea of show, show fans too much and then they can ask for it to be less rather than always have fans questioning it yeah. and asking for more. Uh, finally, before Stephen, and yes, there, there is a section where Stephen actually gets to uh, let some VAR stuff off his chest. Uh, Stanley Amoa says, Dear set piece many, or should I say, Rory and friends. This is my second post, a long way from Buffalo status, he says, and something which has been triggered uh, by this weekend's events. To put simply, VAR. I know there has been all this talk about VAR and how useless it is, or how it is ruining the beautiful game, or magnifying how archaic and rudderless football's laws are. But what I am intrigued by, and curious to also learn your views on, is VAR's effect on the recruiting of referees. If we have VAR, which acts as the sovereign rule over all refereeing decisions, what is the point of assistant referees? They stand and run up and down, but as every decision would be checked in some way, they are pretty useless. The fine margins and offside calls are no longer down to them, and as a result, you could say there's no need for them in VAR-operated games. That's, a, that's actually a really good point. That It has basically... What was the goal? We try not to make things time-specific, but there was a goal quite recently, by which I mean... The weekend just gone. Well, that's when Stanley's got in touch. Yeah. So it's, it's perfectly fine. Where d- 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 the linesman... Oh, it was the, the Ian Nacho goal. The Leicester, uh, Leicester winner Leicester, against Everton, yeah. Which uh, I, I watched... I was in Paris mm. this weekend um, with my sister, but I watched when I got, got back on Match of the Day, and it struck me that you could make a case that... And you obviously should play to the whistle, but you could make a case that the fact the flag had gone up is in itself a distraction. So it did occur to me that there, there is this slight tension between like what the assistant referee does mm-hmm. and the fact that the, basically they're not in charge of that decision anymore. So may, maybe we do get to a stage at some point where we think actually we don't really need, except for throw-ins. But the, the point from Stanley's email was this idea that VAR is now effectively in control. Well, that's not the case. The on-field officials are still making the final decision. They are getting advice and that's one of the other misconceptions and another layer of mistrust. Not, not with offside. In. They're not making the final decision with offside. Well, no, because it's a linear decision. It's either right or wrong. Yeah. They, they are making a decision when it comes, you know, to interpretation. But, it, but if, it's a, if it's a linear decision, then there's no need for them to, 
they can, they can take the guidance. They don't need to double check it for themselves. But could you can you foresee a? Well, no, you probably you probably still need the linesman for the obvious offsides. You probably need still need assistance. You will always need them for because it's it's so much quicker. Just the flag goes up. That's obviously offside. There you go, everyone crack on rather than we're waiting for Stockley Park. Well, it's a, it's the same with every decision on the field. You need an on-field official to make a decision. And then VAR will get involved if they think that that decision may have been incorrect. You do not feel that the role of the assistant is becoming largely ceremonial. Well, not at all, because then you'd be in a then you'd be in a situation where literally every phase of play would have to be checked yeah, yeah. before you could restart. And I think it's vitally important to keep assistant referees because there's nothing funnier than a player hurtling towards a a flag bearing assistant and then clattering into him and the flag going flying. <laughs> so if it only happens once a season, keep him there. Because that is hilarious. Uh, Stanley finishes, um, uh, P.S. Love the podcast. I know you're all busy men and I believe located in the Northwest, but really ought to do a live show in London at some point. Ooh. Well, Stanley, if you want to be our point man on that, uh, then let us know. Setpiecemenu at Gmail, to, or also pay us loads of money to do it. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com, at setpiecemenu, also on Facebook. Uh, Stephen, for F's sake, you don't go to VAR, now to you. I did have a bit of an epiphany this weekend. It happened whilst watching Norwich versus Arsenal mm. and the retaken penalty. There was lots of howling. There was lots of derision. Mm. VAR ruining football. Big controversy that mm. quite a few high-profile social media accounts were referring to as the Aubameyang penalty that was saved and then cleared by a player who had encroached mm -hmm. was subsequently retaken and scored. And even talk of when Norwich did retake the lead just before half-time that justice had been served. Mm. What we have actually discovered this season with VAR people aren't angry at technology for ruining football they're angry about their ignorance being exposed it would have been perfectly fine for people to say oh I was unaware about the encroachment rule or I was unaware about how the rules regarding encroachment were being policed in the Premier League this season there's no shame in not knowing the, the, the rules are quite unwieldy now to be honest and you know, we could all learn a little bit more about them before making judgment. And that was a really good incident in regards to people actually just being upset that they didn't know and that subsequently this VAR controversy. Well, there's nothing controversial about it. You get something right, being get, that's not controversial, yeah, Somebody it? getting a decision right with the help of technology is not controversial. Mm. It would have been controversial if they hadn't. Intervene. It just seems to me if VAR do anything, it's controversial. Yeah. And that, that if they're getting it right, that clearly isn't. They're doing their job and getting to the right decision. But that's partly because we've, that's partly a media thing yeah. that we fixed on VAR as a way to, to sort of satiate our desire for controversy. So everything is VAR controversy. We've, we've, we've talked, talked before about VAR denying or allowing goals. Not how it works, lads. It's, it's the, the rules that are denying or allowing goals and, and that means and that intervening in a dramatic way does not is does, does not, not equal, controversy. equal controversy the encroachment thing is partly because the perception will be that it is not often policed yeah. or, and that's or the problem but it was consistently or, or consistently yeah but it was made clear at the start of the season by the premier league that they would police encroachment if the player who encroached then became active. Yeah. We saw the same thing with, it was Brighton versus Leicester, Jamie Vardy penalty, saved, tapped in by Madison, but Madison had encroached. Yeah. So therefore the fact that he became actively involved after the penalty had been saved meant that it was retaken. Similar circumstances to the Norwich Arsenal. It was only retaken because the player who cleared the ball had was one of those that encroached. If, if it had been a player who hadn't, that would, it wouldn't have mattered. 
Well, they have to be, that's what they have to be is consistent now as well. If you're doing it in one and getting it right, you have to continue to do it. You can't just pick and choose which games you decide actually, to apply. It's it. actually a really sensible way yeah. of enforcing that rule. It I don't really know why anybody yeah. is cross yeah. about it. Right, okay. <laughs> Everybody have a nice VAR shower. There we go. Cleanse ourselves. I don't like the idea of VAR watching me in the shower. (laughs) Now, the question for today's episode will potentially give us a chance to lay blame at our own door. As over the 154 previous iterations of Set Piece Menu, we have done this a few times at least. Couldn't be bothered to check how many exactly you are all welcome to. Do we talk about managers too much? Just at a time where the game is making it very clear that managers are but a cog in the wheel. Just ask Watford fans. Why do we obsess on their every word, consider their every motivation and method, and wonder if the story of the season will actually be that Jose Mourinho seems to be rather nice now. Are you a fully paid up member of the cult of the manager? And is it for you, as it seems to be for the Premier League in particular, a relatively new thing? It might be that in the absence of the likes of Ronaldo and Messi, that that has been the real world-class talent that the Premier League has been marketing over the last five years. Or perhaps it has genuinely been created by the desire to hear what every manager thinks about everything all of the time. But still, do we talk about managers too much? First, a plural version of mea culpa. Is there a way of pluralising mea culpa, Latin expert? Uh, I suppose it might be, it's culpa, yeah, it'd be me, mea culpae. So, first, a mea culpae. No, hang on, does, that would be stupid, that's, that's, my, that's my, yeah, my blame, so it would be, hang on, nos culpae. Nos culpae. Why do we, on the pod, talk about managers? Why is it that we have done several episodes talking about managers when we now come to a question about whether we do it too much? Lack of imagination. <laughs> yes, having no ideas whatsoever on a weekly basis. Uh, having done too many podcasts and run out of subjects. <laughs> we, but we do we not. We enjoy the narratives that are conjured up either by our own conversations or the storylines that permeate through a Premier League season. Well, no, but it's also we're not, we're not immune to... Like we, we, although we probably cast ourselves as this occasionally, not on purpose, but we're not immune to like, the general flaws and foibles of all football fans. So we exist in a, in a world and in a climate where managers are held up as these, these huge figures. And so it's natural that in, to some extent we buy into that and we kind, of, we kind of go along with that kind of overarching theme. It really, basically, this, this, this idea came to me, Hugh, when so the, when the, when I asked our text group for uh, but I already had it so <laughs> in the same way as, so episode one hundred and fifty three which was about clubs in of a certain level being in crisis you'll actually have noticed that several of my rivals and enemies have written pieces along Jonathan Wilson Miguel Delaney mm-hmm. have written pieces along those lines which I'm sure they had it was one five four by the way is that one five four so episode one five four about clubs of a certain level mm-hmm. being in, in a sort of perpetual crisis came to me. Basically, I wanted to crowdsource a, a piece I wanted to write. I wanted you to sort of, without realising it, co- like hone my thoughts so that I can then get a column out of it this week. That's okay, because it works the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. it's read yeah. your stuff and that, do a That podcast intro that I just read out was basically your musings on our, our WhatsApp yeah. group yesterday. So, so, th- so thanks. Th- <laughs> this one is kind of the opposite. I'm not sure that this is something that I would necessarily write, but it's, an, it's a thought that I had about Arsenal. Mm-hmm. So we know that Arsenal's squad not great. Recruitment's been a bit shoddy. Callum Chambers is the right back. Defenders can't defend. Blah 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 blah. We also know that Ralph Sanlehi, who is now the equivalent, I forget his exact title, but director of football, has kind of managed to work himself into a position where he is the surviving member of the, the committee who appointed Unai Emery. He is now in charge of replacing Emery. So, and it struck me that basically we, we football, turned the whole story about Arsenal's stumblings into 
a story about Emery's failings as a manager and as a person, as a human, as a as a Christian. And <laughs> the the um, <laughs> that it just reminds me of being a really odd, quite a good example of what is quite a, quite an odd phenomenon, which is we we kind of know that the problem at Arsenal is the players aren't that good. They've got some good, they do have some good players, obviously, but it's an it's a it's a mismatched, unbalanced squad. We can all see that. Mm-hmm. We also know that people in positions of power, as we see at Manchester United, there is there, there is this movement at Manchester United to say, well, look, Solskjaer is doing terribly, and objectively, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, is doing terribly at Manchester United. But it's actually not his fault, it's the problem is Ed Woodward. And yet, with Arsenal, we seem to be giving San Leahy a free pass, that there is this sort of idea, right, he's sacked Emery, that's the right thing, now don't appoint another manager, that manager will sort everything out. And it struck me as being really odd that, that we aren't saying, well, actually, maybe... Maybe the manager's just kind of a symptom, not a cause. We Every time a manager goes, people always say, oh, it's easier to sack one manager than 25 players, and, and that's true. But at the same time, if you think that the players are the problem, maybe you shouldn't sack the manager. And Emery's maybe not the best example of that, because Emery clearly was doing very badly. But also, if you think that the structure is the problem, then sacking the manager isn't, isn't necessarily the panacea for everything. And it just struck me that we, we are in this position now where managers have become these kind of totemic figures at every club where getting rid of them or appointing them is expected to change the fundamentals of everything almost immediately despite the fact that more and more clubs have a system where the manager is not omnipotent despite the fact that all the data says that managers I think in the numbers game they decided it was kind of having a good manager as opposed to a bad one, to kind of influence 8% of your outcomes. Other studies have been done that find it kind of up to 20. It's a relatively small factor, who your manager is. We know that recruitment is crucially important. We know that having the right structure in place throughout the club is crucially important. We know that executives have to be held accountable. And yet we still, as soon as anything goes wrong, we're like, well, this is probably the manager's fault, so get rid of him. And it's a really strange thing that I've explained very badly. (laughs) The manager, though, is the figurehead, and I suppose it would be true with any organisation that the, the buck stops somewhere. Whether or not it's appropriate that in, in football, especially at the highest level, that the buck stops with the manager, probably not anymore. But we expect to hear from and mm-hmm. scrutinise a football club via normally one person, yeah. and that person happens to be the manager. Mm. They are they're in the most vulnerable position, mm. I suppose. They are... Also, though, in very much an influential position. So, therefore, their musings on any subjects to do with the club are the most relevant because of those two factors. And until and also, they're quite gregarious characters, I suppose. Mm. To be a to be a head coach rather than a director of football, I suppose, by your nature, you want to be hands on. You're you're involved day to day. You want to embrace every facet of the playing side and and perhaps beyond that at the football club that you're involved with. So therefore, what you say matters, even if ultimately you aren't the person making an awful lot of the decisions. That's a bit like, you know, take politics, for example. The the incident happened in London recently, the, the, the terror attack on London Bridge. If, for example, the Home Secretary came out and made a statement about that, that would be all over the news... Mm until the Prime Minister comes out and makes a statement on it. And then whatever the Home Secretary's had to say becomes irrelevant by comparison. And, I, and football works in the same way. Mm. You know, if a captain comes out after the game and 
you know, if the captain's first to be interviewed mm. after a defeat, then what they say carries weight until the manager sits down in the press conference hot seat and, and then those comments probably become more important because they are seen as being senior mm. well it's, it's where the coach slash manager sits he's in between the board and the players we don't hear a lot from players really these days we don't hear a lot from chief executives and chairman they don't like to go on the record so naturally fans will want to hear from the coach because he ultimately embodies what the club or the playing side of things is meant to be about so he's naturally going to be the one if players aren't going to talk if the boardroom isn't going to kind of open up, naturally it is then down to the, the manager. But I just wonder whether managers now feel they have to play up to the role. You can't be, can you be low key in this business anymore? Well, some try, but they... But, the, but the ultimately sim- then because of the demands on you, maybe in terms of the media more than anything else, that you are front and centre on everything that happens in football generally and also at your club. So you, you can't really take a back seat and say, well, I'd rather not do that interview. You don't have any choice. So you have to develop that side of your skill set yes, because so that, that's what's demanded of you, even if you're not comfortable doing it. The system is set up mm. to make the manager front and centre and then that same system reacts to everything that yeah. the manager says so it is it is a kind of a, a circle if you've got if you've got a manager who has essentially watched the game like the fans rather than participating in the game so you feel at least partly akin to the experience that the managers had um yes they are a spokesperson but as steve says the the spokesperson that is available to all mm-hmm. because if you think about a player afterwards a player even if it's a crucial player, man of the match, somebody who's got a hat-trick, they will often be made available to rights holders, mm. but they won't sit down and do a press conference like they do in the States, for example, mm. where they have key players always doing stand-up press conferences at the end of each game. There are those outside of the rights holders who will only, therefore, get to hear directly from the manager. Now, they can all put a dictaphone up by the television and, and take those quotes off, clearly, but, but if you are a non-rights-holding broadcaster, for example, you will only get to use words that have been uttered by the manager yeah. so this is all funneled to make that person who is often older obviously mm. more articulate because they are older not quite as sweaty <laughs> not quite as sweaty um, and because yeah they've had a certain amount of distance from the game even though they're emotionally invested they are able to give an immediate impression of the whole rather than a player who will give an impression of their own performance within that whole well obviously there's a part of a part of, of, of the the kind of in a logic to it is that the manager is the one who has set the plan. So the manager is the one who kind of has to be held accountable to for how did you feel your plan went? A player can't answer that accurately. What that could be true of a game, but in terms of the club's philosophy. Yeah, possibly not. It might be different for Klopp and Guardiola, but are there other other coaches are part of presumably the bigger picture. They are the yeah. the mouthpiece, but ultimately a lot of decisions aren't theirs well, to even make. You won't Guardiola. get a, a weekly chat with Raul Sanlehi about yeah. how no, Arsenal are playing. But maybe you should. So you, I remember there's, there's two examples that, from this season. One is, is Guardiola on Abu Dhabi and human rights. It's a slightly complicated one because the, the wearing the Catalan ribbon kind of opened last year, opened Guardiola up to, okay, so hang on, why are Catalan human rights more important than Qatari human rights? Or the human rights of, of, of foreign workers in 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 the United Arab, Arab Emirates. But you're asking a man whose qualification is that he was a really good midfielder about a, a complex social issue. Like, who cares what like what Pep Guardiola thinks about human rights is not actually very important. They're not going to be quoting that 
in seminars. You know, Amnesty are not going to take on, or Human Rights Watch are not going to take on Guardiola's advice. But it's become normal to ask that kind of well, question well, because, to that person. Because they're the, they're the mouthpiece of the ah, club. Okay. The person you want yeah. to ask that question yeah. is Chaldean Almabarak or Simon Pearce, the people who actually run Man City on behalf of, mm-hmm. of Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a much more footballing thing was Pochettino, before, you know, God rest his soul, um, being asked about transfer targets in the summer. And Pochettino always said, you, you kind of have to ask somebody else it. Mm. You, this isn't my responsibility. And because of the way the media works, it was taken as kind of Pochettino showing he's unhappy. And he's, he's, ha- you know, he's having a, a sort of veiled did at Daniel Levy or something. He wasn't. He, just, he literally meant that he doesn't do the negotiations. That's not his job. He's busy like teaching the offside trap or whatever, or teaching Jan Vertonghen not to close people down. And the, there was this sort of... This, this, almost this wall came down, and you sort of think, well, actually, do you know what? If we can't ask... Daniel Levy, we, we can't ask Daniel Levy, certainly not on the record, then who do we ask? We better ask Pochettino then. So every week he'd, he'd be saying, I don't know how the negotiations with Giovanni Lascelles are going, because it, I'm not running them. It's not my job. You have to ask somebody else. But I, I think you're all right, and this is the, the thought that occurred to me. I think it's, it's partly an access thing. that So certain clubs have always been driven more by managers than anybody else. Liverpool are the, are the prime example of, the, of a club that has had a cult of the manager for a long time, ever since Shankly. Mm-hmm. United is slightly different, I think. United have had, obviously, two sort of incredibly great managers. David Moyes and... Um, <laughs> Louis van Gaal. And Louis van Gaal. No, United had Busby and they had Ferguson. And that, that changed... Th- that effectively, I think, changed the dynamic of the club where that it is a club that still even now, kind of yearns for that strong man-manager, that kind of omnipotent You mentioned Shankly and, and they were strong personalities themselves. They weren't, not manufactured, but maybe yeah. modern coaches are more trying to be... Oh, that, that's definitely true. It wasn't natural to there them to be as strong as those, there, there those guys There is an image, were. Shankly obviously I'm far too young to remember, but the it seemed to, those, those quips and those one-liners seemed to come quite naturally to him in the same way as that they came naturally to Clough. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was part of their personality. But then Don Reavy was much more abrasive and... I think that there has always been, yeah, I think there's always been certain clubs that have been prone to seeing managers as messiahs. And Liverpool are one of them, there are others. What's interesting is that everybody now seems to think that way. That that seems even, odd to me, and I think it's because that's who we have access to. Yes, but but even those clubs who don't consider the manager to be a cult or a personality or a, an important cog in their wheel, because as we've seen with Watford again... They decide on an almost tri-monthly basis that if it's not working, that the manager is just as dispensable as dropping a player for a game or two. Mm-hmm. So, w- as you said, Rory, yesterday, and we said in the in- introduction, this is the period of the game that more than ever before has a interchangeable policy, or cl- some clubs have an interchangeable policy on their head coach position, and they are just as movable as any other pawn in this game. It's, it's probably come about organically. But I'd imagine it's a situation that suits both parties, both the manager and those that run the club. Because those who operate in in the shadows a little bit, chief executives, chairman, directors of football, are quite happy not to have to deal with the scrutiny. Partly because they don't want to be asked the questions. Possibly because, you know, they are not as good at communicating themselves as the person they employ to be the manager. But that doesn't apply in any... I know what you mean. No, that doesn't apply in any other business. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's probably happened organically over time, but now it's a status quo that suits those who are involved. Because, again, the manager, someone who is the head coach or manager of a big club, is generally going to have a strong personality. Mm. They are going to be a good spokesperson. 
they are going to be good with the media. Still They're describing be David good, Moyes. Good yeah. with the uh, well, that's a good. You know, if they if they aren't able to do that, Claude Puel is a is a recent yeah. example of he just wasn't able to come across. In, in interviews, and you'd say you'd imagine that was reflected a little bit in the dressing room, convincingly, so therefore his shelf life was always going to be short. You know, part of Jurgen Klopp's brilliance is how he handles the media. You know, same with Jose Mourinho, Pep Guardiola too. And they, and they want, and I'd imagine that part of the personality of a manager is that they want to appear in control. So the reason that that Pochettino example that you cited in terms of, well, I, you know, talk saying, well, you have to speak to somebody else about transfers. I would imagine that at the start of his tenure at Tottenham, he was more than happy to answer questions like that and would give Mm. an update as though he was fully across it. It's only when relations become a little bit more strained that he's likely to say, well, you'll have to speak to Daniel Levy about those sorts of things because he's less concerned at that point by seeming as though he's not quite in control. How much consideration then do you feel owners looking to employ someone when they're looking across Europe for a, there were a lot of really great coaches out there? Do they then consider what those guys will be like in press conferences and in front of cameras? Without a doubt. Uh, yeah, be how, how, be what percentage of, in terms of employing someone, how important do you feel that is now? Because they, again, they represent the club presumably, so they want somebody who is really savvy and slick and knows how to play the game with the media. So that comes into it. It's not just being a good coach. No, no, no. It's, it's actually being able to handle the pressures the, that the come with it in front of the camera. The exception to that role is Manuel Pellegrini, who was, during his time at Manchester City, lauded, I imagine, by those above him and certainly fans, for being so dull that there was no controversy. Mm. And it gen- It's all it those years in does... Coronation Street as Audrey Roberts. It, it clearly <laughs> yeah. has, has worn him down. His acting was on the street and then in the press conference <laughs> he very much dialed it back. But he, he, he deliberately is not interesting. He attempts to be dull in any of his media engagements. You're saying Pellegrini acting on the street, dull between the sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Of a newspaper. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, no, but City, so City's quite an interesting one because City very clearly, after the whole Tevez era, Balotelli era, City clearly had a policy of we want boring players. We do not, they realised that the, that if they wanted to A, become the club that they wanted to become and, and have become, and B, if they wanted to, to kind of be seen as the people who get it right. It's not just that they're the rich team, that the, the, the petrol and ideas, as Wenger put it, they are the team that does stuff right. You can't have that being derailed by Carlos Tevez going on strike on the bench in Munich. You can't have it derailed because Balotelli's setting off fireworks in a the bathroom. They very clearly, after Mancini, Tevez, Balotelli, went for boring players. They wanted good, solid James Milner types. And I think beige that, players, not beige, but just kind of good, solid professionals. You look yeah. at their signings, and even people like, I mean, Raspberry Ripple, <laughs> da- David Silver is probably yeah. the, 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 the arrived old before, but trying, yeah. To, yeah. trying to get players who are married young or encouraging them to marry young, yeah. so that their wild side uh, is is moved on from as soon as possible. They wanted more Silvers than Tevez is. Just David Silver is, is is an unassuming, perfectly pleasant but quite dull person to speak to. He's not necessarily anything controversial. The dull as a journalist, I don't no idea what he's like in his private life. He might be might be fascinating, but. He's a wild child. It wouldn't surprise me if they, they looked at Pellegrini and thought, actually, do you know what? At this stage in our development as a club, what we need is a manager who, who basically will, will go out, be, rel- be relatively polite. and There's no blip on the footballing radar with Pellegrini. Well, well it's, people stopped going to his press conferences because it was pointless. It was pointless. But, and the interesting thing with City is Guardiola, as a fully signed up member of the church of Guardiola, I think Guardiola's actually quite bad with the media. 
I think Pep, he gets away with it because he's Pep. And so people are hanging on, on, on his every word and you want to know what Pep thinks about certainly all footballing issues. Not that fussed by what he thinks about human rights abuses in various countries because it's not his sphere of expertise. But if it was a lesser manager than Guardiola adopting his kind of person, his the personality that he projects to the media, which is he's, he's within his rights to do, it's not, I don't care. But I think they would be slaughtered because he's chippy and he's he's a bit dismissive and a little bit sort of unhelpful and a bit kind of just he very much gives, gives, gives you the impression that he hates you which is fine he's allowed to I think the technical term is arsy yeah he's arsy yeah. Guardiola is arsy with the media and but you're right you, you earn the he's earned the right when I mentioned that you know in saying he's good with the media he's good for the media mm. because of his profile, his significance, you know, in many ways, he's the, you know, successor to Sir Alex in, in that regard, because he yeah. wasn't, he wasn't, he, wasn't good, no. he, he was, he was definitely arsy an awful lot of the time. Except that but Ferdy to, to throw out a line. I think Guardiola does that, but he doesn't necessarily throw out a line like Fergie would in the, the manipulative way he threw out what he wanted to be out mm. there. Um, what Guardiola does, if you kind of watch full press conferences, including sections that aren't broadcast very much because they're in the embargo section later on, and so it doesn't get played out on Sky Sports News as much, and certainly not during prime time, um, he... he charms very very rarely but he does it enough to make i would imagine the media think oh well, that makes everything else okay because yeah, it's possibly. pep guardiola and he's been funny and he's been kind of communicative in a different sort of way oh, that I, makes you feel better because it's pep and pep just was told me a joke yeah and or when when guardiola seems to engage with your question you think oh my god i've asked Yes, you know, he's interested I've, in what I'm I've asked hundreds in. of questions in press conferences and when Guardiola kind of when you give one to Guardiola and he, he kind of thinks actually do you know what that's interesting enough to engage with you do feel good you think this is this is the preeminent so coach you're, of his you're era endlessly searching for that and you put up with all the, the arsiness yeah. because of it this is it's not it's not perfect but it's not unique to football I don't think because if you think of American sports where they have a head coach and a general manager you hear from the head coach considerably mm. more than you would hear from the general manager despite the fact arguably they're making even more day-to-day -day decisions than and you hear from them more often as well three yeah. times a week and I suppose the only the one oh, that, the that one sounds that is, really boring the one that is slightly different is is rugby I know we've already established that we're not going to take too much guidance from, from do not the way any, the rugby no, operates no. but you do hear from directors of rugby on a fairly regular basis but, uh, sort of dovetails between yeah, but that, and why they should kick it more in the air randomly yeah, yeah. They, they, no, no they leave they that they never bit to kick the, the ball in the air randomly how they like that is just a, a, a very silly statement from an intelligent man <laughs> how, how they like how they like everyone Owen Farrell does not just lump the ball up in the air it's all part of the game plan Rory how, how they like just all the, you're doing the, the hand gestures so you want to say grappling jumping on each other and then some, some referee you know making some do? sort of arcane decision let's take him along to a sale shark <laughs> training a dreadful session. see how brave you are then and say to an oh you're just sport. kicking it anywhere are you boys we'll see how they react to that you, you are describing in the way that you're describing Owen Farrell playing rugby union you are describing the way that Andy Hinchcliffe used to be you know, hitting those 60-yard diagonals, they are long passes and everyone had meaning. It would make, just to get us back... If not track, direction. <laughs> <laughs> it would actually make much more sense to hear from a cross-section cross of people involved at the club mm. on a regular basis and question them about things that they are actually in control of. That you would speak to the director of football. But the fans really want to hear from the director yeah, of football. Yeah, do they? Yeah, really? Definitely. definitely. The yeah. bog-standard football fact. If you say, who do you want to hear? They really want to hear what's happening in the boardroom. It's difficult to say because I wonder if, if it, there's a filter bubble effect where you are surrounded by kind of 
really devoted fans who are in, interested in the kind of the minutiae of, of a club who who I think probably would want to to hear from a director of football because they know that that's who's in charge of recruitment. You want to hear from the chief exec on business decisions and to be fair, there are quite a lot of chief execs who will kind of front up. The odd thing is that the manager is a hugely important role but that they are expected to handle everything even when we know and they are telling us that they can't answer those questions like Pochettino and, and transfers. And I wonder whether part of it is because it's an, old, it's an old-fashioned thing in the same way as it maybe is in the States where the head coach used to be the most important figure and we just haven't kind of yep. changed our structure. But I also wonder if, if it's partly a function of access, as Steve has said, that it, it's someone that the club can put up who becomes a mouthpiece, who becomes a kind of spokesman and a, and a brand and a sort of public face of the club. And because the media gets access to that person, naturally, because they always have, the media has now decided, actually, these managers are all incredibly important. And look, obviously, Guardiola is a, is a crucial figure in the history of football. No question about that. He, he will be part, same as Mourinho, same possibly as Klopp. They will go down as, as major figures in football's history. But that isn't true of most managers. That most managers are just kind of, you know, they're, they're quite good at their job for a bit, then they're not, then they are, then they're not, then they are, then they die. And that's kind of what managers do. And I find it interesting that we, because of that mixture of kind of access and tradition, that we've built up this, this world in which we, know, we simultaneously know that managers don't make, make that much difference, but that they are the, the most intrinsic, crucial people we can imagine. Yes, we've created a culture in which what the manager says is overwhelmingly more relevant than anybody else involved with the club. Well, actually, we should be trying to get away from that. I'll give you the example of when, you know, when I was covering Manchester United for the BBC for a large chunk of that time, Sir Alex wasn't speaking to the BBC. The BBC were banned by him. So, after games. I would interview instead the assistant manager, so Carlos Quiroz, Mike Phelan, uh, Rennie Mullenstein. Walter now, Smith. Walter Smith at one point. Now, towards the, the latter stages of Fergie's time at Manchester United, he wasn't really you know, involved on, on the training ground as much as he, he had been previously. So actually, if they could have spoken freely without fear of contradicting their manager, what Rennie Mullenstein had to say about tactics after the game and what had gone right and wrong was probably just as relevant, if not more relevant, yeah. than what Sir Alex had to say about it. What Rennie Mullenstein would have said was that all the bits that went right were his, his responsibility <laughs> and all the bits that went wrong were not. With somebody, somebody yeah, else. Somebody else's, probably Michael Cameron. Well, okay, it would have been a great clip. But <laughs> <laughs> You've just described the, the whole reason why Steve is making the point. But really, ultimately, I would do that interview for the BBC and we would use it because we had to use it, but nobody else, no one was interested. You know, no, no, those, those quotes did not get picked up and supersede anything mm. that Sir Alex had said. You know, the minute he came out and did Sky, MUTV, the rare press conference, yeah. those would be the quotes that would get used. I mean, even we would sometimes say, this is what Alex, you know, we would paraphrase what Alex Ferguson had said and then play a clip of somebody yeah. else to, you know, it would be the hook to hang voice. the clip off. You know, but actually, it would make much more sense if we operated like that, that if we spoke to the director of football about transfers, you know, mm. around the time that the transfer window was about to slam dramatically shut, and that you would speak to the first team coach about yeah. tactics and that you would only speak to the manager or head coach about things that were particularly relevant to them but I, we're never going to see it's, those it's the person not, not the pros it. it's always the is person the, is, is always the media the guilty of maybe creating these monsters as well because of course with, with cameras we, we, we want everything to be said so you need an individual it's the easiest thing to do is to get an individual to represent a club mm. so but then do then that individual then feel they have to 
play the role of being this mouthpiece, being funny in press conferences, being kind of arsy at times as well. So again, are we creating, are the coaches changing because of the deme- media demands on them? Yes, without and, a shadow of a doubt. And if you look, the other thing that's really important is the, the way that managers look now and it's yeah, massively yes. trend driven. Yeah. So there is now a tendency for, there was, you know, it used to be track suits and big coats and increasingly it's, it, then green there was a, jumpers a green jumpers and then there was a trend for suits you wanted to look like a kind of uh, a travelling salesman and you you just happened to be in charge of a football match but because you were wearing a suit you were more important than all these people in shorts because obviously trousers are more important than shorts it's great to be on the meeting when they decide on what they're going to wear which, which form of legwear best conveys authority shorts or trousers you can't convey authority in shorts it's one of the problems of captaincy Colots are excellent um, for that Colots. <laughs> shall I wear shall I wear jodhpurs <laughs> <laughs> whilst fox hunting I really think if, you know, if, if, if touchline attire is your thing then the Bundesliga is the place to go well this is it but the, mm. the Bundesliga has set this trend now of, of managers basically wearing kind of what you'd wear on a office night out basically yeah. Julian Nagelsmann at Leipzig uh, went through the entirety of a Champions League game recently looking like he was about to go straight from the match to meet his prospective in-laws oh, really? and wanted to wear something that would suit suit both. How am I going to impress my to-be wife's parents whilst also overseeing a victory over uh, Zenit? But, cle- the but clearly they're, they're thinking about how they look and how they act. Yeah, so it's really so important. It's, it's, this is clubs is that, that's not, it's, some, of the, some of it will be natural, natural development, but others will be clear. Look at what maybe Guardiola wear. It must come into their thinking. How does. can we look... Of course right. it does, and if you think about Marco Silva, there's no question that part of Marco Silva's shtick is that he's Portuguese, which is a good association to have in management. Mm-hmm. But also he he kind of dresses a bit like Jose Mourinho, well, and that's not that, that's not accidental. Well, Freddie Freddie Lundberg turned up at Carra Road, seemingly intent on making sure that nobody remembered that he was once upon a time an underwear model because he'd become he'd come dressed as a geography teacher. Yeah, <laughs> but th- does this make them uh, uh, to a certain degree then? the architects of their own downfall because they are promoting themselves they are heightening the importance of mm. the role within the system even though some clubs have decided that it isn't that important and certainly not as important as Sir Alex was to Manchester United or Shankly was to Liverpool but they are creating they are driving this sense of cult because it probably gets them more jobs and better jobs and for better money and they are putting themselves into the spotlight so much and one of the reasons if you believe Marty Perrineau that um, Pep left Barcelona because he didn't want to be that spokesperson. Mm. He didn't want to be the the guy speaking about all the off the field matters. That worked well. And <laughs> he felt like he um, Pep felt apparently, according to Martin Perrineau, that Sandra Rosell, the, the president at the time of Barcelona, was basically abdicating his responsibilities and saying, "Go on, you do it. You take the flat. You take the flat." Because they had some off field issues during the time. So that would be interesting to see if that develops with Pep at City and whether if he feels like he's becoming the spokesperson for everything, he might decide that that's it for him. I mean, that's really out of the frying pan into the fire stuff, isn't it, really? But by he, comparison. But there, there are there are clearly managers, and, and I just want to finish our conversation by talking about Jose Mourinho and the fact that we are now talking about a man incessantly and list, hanging off his every word and the fact that he's inviting ball boys and will continue to invite ball boys and ball girls to, to their pre-match meal and... The, the cult surrounding Jose Mourinho has been one storyline up until this point and now he's either attempting to change it or he's showing us his true colours or he's a leopard changing his spots but part of the reason why we are obsessed with Jose Mourinho and his seeming changes to his personality for the Spurs job is that he has promoted himself to such a degree that we are following it now if we follow every twist and twer- turn of a manager like him surely we're going to hi- hold them to a, to a much more 
uh, much higher standard and much more scrutiny. And so therefore, any missteps are going to be heightened in the same way and they are more likely to, to follow a narrative which ends in the big sack. Yeah, and Mourinho is a good example of a manager who has ridden the wave and is clearly prepared to do whatever happens when the wave crashes. You know, he, he understands that, to, that you have to sell yourself as the visionary, as the messiah, as the guru. And he, he will be aware, I, th- I suspect, that that comes at a cost that when... That you basically, if you claim that all the successes are because of your brilliance, he will understand in, inherently that when the success stops, people will correct, will, will, will assume, not, not correctly, but naturally assume that it is because the, your brilliance has worn off. That's the, that's the risk they take. And that's the, that's the environment in which Arsenal is different because Raul Salehi should be at least partly, or in the discussion about who, who might be to blame for I don't their understand current why woes. Raul Sanlehi is also... Or, or people like a, yeah, Raul Yeah, Sanlehi. not necessarily just him, but the director of football is also a cog in the wheel. That I don't understand why, if you would look at an underperforming team where the players aren't good enough, the manager's not good enough, you, would, you might, th- might still think, right, we need to change the manager. This ha- th- we obviously have to do this. But why would you not also think, actually, this director of football has got loads of decisions but wrong the, over the, the last the, two the years. Point Let's is, get rid of him as well. The point is that they, they, will, they will not do anything public. They operate in the shadows. And the reason that they operate in the shadows partly must be is because if they didn't, their head would be more on the chopping block. Because yeah. instead of us having a conversation about why do we talk about managers so much, we'd be saying, why do we talk about directors of football directors or, chief of scouts football or, or, or chief scouts or general managers? And so they know that there is a, a problem that could be down the road. This is them. really good hot soccer chat. I'm really enjoying it. But Steve, you mentioned there Freddie Lungberg looking like a geography teacher. I'd just like to invite all our listeners to think about their, their maybe their high school, their secondary school geography teacher in a pair of bright white budgie smugglers. I didn't say... It's, she, I it's he, really upsetting, isn't it? Because Mr Rogers from William Hume Grammar School, <laughs> goodness me, he, he wore tweed well. Let me... But hot pants, absolutely not. I just want to be clear, I said he was dressed like a geography teacher, not mm. that he looked like a geography teacher. He's very handsome. He's it's too handsome to be a geography teacher. Yes, I was going to say, if you had a geography teacher like Freddie Lundberg, well done you. Um, it is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. I'm just going to my notes um, because I've done some... Yes, there it is. I've got my notes. Now, I did a recent game, a West Bromwich Albion game. They're, mm. they're quite a famous team, West Bromwich Albion. Famous coach, the Slavin Bilic. The, the Croatian beast, a good friend of mine from our Everton days. And this is a story when... We were together at Everton, and then for some ridiculous reason, I was sold from Everton. Nonsense. Went to Sheffield Wednesday, and it was a relegation battle. Don't touch my phone, my notes are on it. And this was a relegation game between Sheffield Wednesday and Everton at Goodison on the 5th of April, 1999. It's a date that's etched in my memory now. Chinch's <laughs> um, <laughs> notes is a screenshot of the date the game was played. Yes, that's and he's just, he's just that's, zoomed in. No, 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 hold on, hold on. I've still got the result okay. and the half-time score. I've taken the scorers off because I know Benny Carboni scored twice, so don't worry about that. But anyway, anyway, the story is we were 1-0 up. I was playing brilliantly. Um, <laughs> no, actually, no, sorry. We were 1-0 down. We got it back to 1-1. I probably set the goal up for Benny Carboni. It, and it then um, on your graphic, <clears throat> half-time, 1-0 to Everton. Yes, OK. So you weren't even referring I think, to your notes. I think the fox wrong. in the box, Franny Jeffers, had opened the scoring. But it, it, again, we just lulled them in to then beat them, which is what basically we did. But it was, whatever the score was, it doesn't matter. And there was, um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a free kick 25 yards out, and I was notorious for putting those in the top corner. And Everton set their defensive wall up, and Slavin Bilic is obviously playing for Everton. He's in the wall, and it never, ever happened in any other game I've ever played in. So I'm standing over this free kick, doing my meditation, going through my Willie Donachie process of how I'm going to put this in the top corner. And then out the corner of my eye, I see this figure 
have a slow trudge out of the wall in my direction. So he's left the wall and he's slowly trudging over towards me. And it's Slavin Bilic. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, something, has the decision been overturned? Something happened yeah. here. So Slavin just comes up. So I kind of, I, I erect myself in the best possible way. <laughs> to face up to Slavin and he comes right up to me because Slavin has this he, he, he does it now when he talks he talks right in your face he doesn't he, he doesn't give you your space you know he doesn't get, leave me my dance space he gets very close to me so he comes right up virtually nose to nose which is difficult with me and he right. just says to me please don't <laughs> just two words please don't and what he meant was you can't do this to us. We, you could end up, if you put this ball in the top corner, we get beaten today. You could relegate the team that I was, and, I under, and that's probably why, why I scuffed the free kick and, and hit the shins of the wall. But it never happened before where an opposition player came over to me. and I, Was it mind games? He's looking to put me off. But I felt really, and I couldn't, could I? Once, Slavin was lovely and we got on really well. Please don't. It wasn't like, if you effing do this, I'm going to break your effing neck. It wasn't any of that. Mm. And it re those two words really struck home. But ultimately, won the game anyway. Benny Benny but, but, not nearly as, as emotionally Yeah, and no, he didn't. He, 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 was, he wanted to send Everton down. But thankfully, both teams <laughs> survived. But when I see Slava now, I keep saying this to him, and he, he does remember it. And he said, well, yeah, why would you want to... I said, yeah, but if you go back to a former club, you want to show them what they're missing. But I, there's no way I could have scored from that free kick. And every time I see Slava, I, th I think of that little trudge that he had out of the wall and that plead to not put the ball in the top corner so that's why I didn't Slavin Bilic so, um, so dedicated to Everton of course that while he was playing there he used to go and stand on the crop and watch Liverpool he ne just loved Liverpool that lad he really did loved not the Liverpool city. The, the city, city. Yeah. the city of Liverpool ne never let us say or mm. be in a position to ever say to you please don't um, please instead subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Stephen and Andy and TV all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Do you remember the name of your geography teacher? I do. Uh, he was... Uh, Mr. Naylor. Mr. Naylor. Steve, do you remember? I, 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 I dropped drop, geography I drop fairly. Geography, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for understandable reasons, Rory. No, not off the top of my head. There must be a teacher. Where are we, where are we going with this? We're not going Which anywhere, it's just I'm interested. For good reasons or bad reasons? Well, we'll find out when Steve My tells us why. My teacher was Mr. Charles. Mr. Charles, yeah? Yeah. Yes. Hugh? I dropped geography because the, the, the um, geography teacher, whose name I've forgotten, he was old, he wore brown suits. Um, he, he asked us to uh, draw a map of the UK and then on the edges of you know, the coastline, <laughs> you just had to, to do blue and just do blue shading. And basically, he just got us to do that for like a whole week. And I, I got the impression that he was... Not really that invested I'd in teaching geography <laughs> at that point. I'd have loved that sort of business, maps and places and where they were. I dropped geography. It was all about, it was all about Oxbow Lakes. When did you last yeah. see an Oxbow Lake? Who cares about Oxbow Lakes? Not me. Although I am very aware of the coastline of Great Britain. I bet you are, and how well shaded it is. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of sea around Britain, isn't there? Yes, that's yeah. why it took, took like three lessons worth. <laughs> do you think you're... Do you think you're well, welcome, back, welcome back, boys. If you can carry on with the shading, well, I'll see you in two once weeks. Once you've started, where do you stop with that? I can't were you, remember Were you eventually I mean. shading in the Indian Ocean? Well, I just... <laughs> No. I just I just remember thinking this is really tiresome because you could never because you're either left-handed or right-handed obviously the shading would be difficult to do on either mm. either side depending on whether you're left-handed or right-handed and I just found it very very tiresome. Why don't you just revolve the page? Revolve the page. Revolve the page.